listening to a message from Red Church in Melbourne, Australia. If you'd like to know more about Red or its ministries, please go to redchurch.org.au. Well, welcome to Red Churches today. We open God's Word wherever you are, whenever you're watching this. We'd like to extend our welcome to you. My name's Mark. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Red, and we're going to open God's Word today. We are in the midst of a series, and this series is called Rebuilding Hope. We kicked it off last week. Encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't. And really, we're exploring how at this moment, there is this tremendous hunger for renewal in the world. There's this deep desire to see the church change, for individual people to have their lives transformed, and for believers to feel more of the presence of God. But we find ourselves with that desire, but the renewal which we hope for hasn't fully arrived yet in many, in, in many ways. So we find ourselves in this weird in-between space, in-between decline. We have a desire for renewal, but renewal is not here in the ways that we expect it yet. Also, just at this time in history, we find ourselves, having been in the pandemic now for over 12 months, we can sort of see the end of the tunnel, yet we're not in the post-COVID world. We're somewhere between the COVID world and the post-COVID world. And they're just some of the changes that we find ourselves in between, in between two eras in the world at this moment. So how do we live as believers in this in-between time? We looked at last week how the scriptures tell us that even in these confusing times, any confusing times the people of God have found themselves in history, God seeds the land with prophets and those who have set themselves apart for him. So what this, the purpose of this series is to call out faith, to rebuild faith and to actually see our lives transformed and to become the renewal that God wants in the world. We're going to begin uh, with uh, today's text, which comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, an account of Jesus's life. Uh, we're looking at chapter 11 and we're starting at verse 21. So I'm just going to read this out and then I'm going to sort of set this up. Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Evan Hopkins was an engineer who lived in the 19th century. He was of Welsh extraction but was South American. He grew up in what is today Colombia. He came to Australia for part of his education, but found himself migrating back to the land of his parents' birth in the United Kingdom. He found a call to ministry one day in a conversation with a fisherman and then began a ministry as a vicar in the city of London ministering amongst those who were poor. The city of London at that time during the Industrial Revolution had all these people coming from the countryside as technology disrupted the culture at the time. And there was huge problems with poverty uh, and, and housing. And so he was someone who God placed into that environment. He then found himself at a new parish. His ministry was growing. It was recognized the gifting and talent that this young man had. He had a strong faith. He felt called to ministry. There were no moral failings or hidden sins that he was keeping from others. Yet, nevertheless, he faced a crisis. 
Like so many at this time in the 19th century, he confronted a crisis in his faith. His faith, which should have been his greatest joy, living for Jesus, seemed often like a struggle, an ongoing plodding forward, a hoping for a breakthrough but never getting there. He lived in a spiritual gray zone. His life had been overtaken by a lethargy, an anxiety, a kind of nervous defeat. Now, this was not just an individual phenomenon. Remarkably, this was true for a staggering amount of people at this time. As the modern world kicked off and technology disrupted, people moved to the cities and the world was going through a shaking. The modern world was being born, but there seemed to be a personal price that people were paying. There was a series of new ailments that emerged at the end of the 19th century, which in many ways confounded science and medicine at this time. These afflictions didn't affect affect everyone. Really, they seemed to hit the new class of people who worked in white-collar industries, who lived in in urban environments, who had sedentary work. The kinds of people who were known at that time as brain workers. And so a whole raft of new and previously never encountered illnesses affected the citizens of these emerging cities. Paris, New York, London. Women complained of nervous disorders, a sense of never feeling at ease, uh, being swamped with negative emotions which rose rapidly and which doctors and experts blamed on this phenomenon they called hysteria. Men suffered from what were known at the time as or called at the time brain fevers, brain storms and nervous exhaustion. Experts labeled the phenomenon neurasthenia. The American writer William James, who was a sufferer himself, coined the phrase, this was Americanitis. Anxiety became normative for people. People found themselves overcome with a constant doubt that they'd actually done something wrong. The culture, as it does when searching for a solution, and in response, a whole bunch of proposed cures from the rise of psychoanalysis with Sigmund Freud and therapy to the beginnings of the New Age movement as people began to take Eastern spirituality and try and adapt it to the West. There was the advent of self-help with the idea of positive thinking. There was the beginnings of the sexual revolution. Even Coca-Cola can trace its origins back to this time where Coca-Cola was initially marketed as a cure to this phenomenon that was besetting people. Christians, genuine believers, many who stood on the shoulders of previous generations of revival and renewal, instead of offering an answer, a different way of living for this cultural curse, found themselves struck down with the same ailments. The amount of accounts of men and women of God at this time, overcome by these raging emotions, this anxiety, this often exhausting grit your teeth and keep going experience is remarkable. At this point, the culture shaking, church reviving awakenings of the past had seemingly faded. And now with this new ailment and new introspection seemed to take over. 
And yet, as it always is the case, at those moments when it feels like this is going to be the new reality, decline is inevitable, a new kind of renewal was about to move. One which looked different from previous renewals and awakenings. And one thing to note throughout history is that when renewals and awakenings come, they often have a different character. They are a response from God to something that is happening in the culture. And so this new, hard-to-describe initially kind of renewal began. It was post-denominational. It was breaking out in small meetings, often in retreats and conventions. As people went out of the city into nature, even there was little outbreaks as people went holidaying in the Alps in Switzerland. God was about the business of renewing his people. And this movement, which kicked off at this time, would eventually spread out across the globe to the four corners of the earth, reviving the church worldwide. For Evan Hopkins, this refreshing came during a small meeting of Christians in Mayfair in London that he'd been invited to. About a dozen or so were meeting in this room, hearing a speaker, and the speaker expounded on the verse in 2 Corinthians 9.8, where it says, And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you will need, so having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. This was a verse, but it unleashed a seemingly new world for this group. So pivotal was this moment that Hopkins called it his May Day experience, the defining point in his faiths going forward. This was the truth, the reality that God wanted to bless his children. That the work is not us to strive for, but actually the work is God's. Breaking out was this hope for a different kind of faith beyond just the faith of struggling through constant, seemingly spiritual defeat. That one's life could be rescued from continual continual hindrance and struggle to a faith rather based in a trusting and a resting in God. To get peace regardless of circumstance, a heavenly peace. And this new experience of faith broke out from these small meetings all across the world. Before then, Christians looked back with fondness to the moment of salvation when they had first encountered Jesus, the high point of their Christian faith. But then they settled into this kind of resignation that the best days were past and that life now was this anxious wait until the other side of death and to the release of heaven. Instead, what was happening was God was pouring out across a whole new generation of believers the vision that he wished to bless his children with deep, joyous faith. This sense that heaven could be experienced and it was breaking out into the earth. Now, this was a really important renewal. Why? Because up to this point, you had a generation, as we learned last week, there were still seeds of faith in the land. There were people out there who were faithful people who still believed in God's orthodox theology. They still believed and assented to the fact that Jesus was Lord. Yet what they possessed was Faith without hope. Faith without hope. Now, 
This story is over a century old that I've been telling up to this point of this renewal and the story of Evan Hopkins. But as I read this, there's a tremendous sense of resonance with our moment. We too are in a gray zone experience. And just as all the things that afflicted people at that time are very similar to what we see today. The sense of a gnawing anxiety, these nervous disorders. We may have different names for those things and maybe projecting different cures or perhaps more advanced cures. But the sense of the spiritual issue at play in gray zone is still there. And just as back then, Christians often could not offer an alternative to the culture and found themselves beset by the same ailments as the culture. I think if we take a hard, clear look at ourselves today, there's something true about that. There's a sense where we can publicly, like the Christians of the 19th century, affirm that we're called to reflect the life of God to see heaven invading earth in our lives, yet privately so many suffer from a different experience. And when you have faith without hope, two things tend to happen. The first one is if your hope is not in God, yet you still have faith, you will look to the world for hope. You'll find the answers in the world through the myriad of solutions that the world offers. The second temptation is to look at the world in all its brokenness, not look at it as a potential answer, but to see a world where there doesn't seem to be any answers and to fall into hopelessness. So one, to look to the world for your hope. Two, to look at the world and be overcome by hopelessness. Now, you might be one or the other, or you might be a combination of both. But instead of looking to the earth for its answers, What happened in the 19th century is the word of God, which strangely people had read these verses, but there's these moments in history when the Holy Spirit opens up the scriptures and allows his revelation to fill the hearts of believers. And so when we read this passage that we read at the beginning, we ask the question, what does Jesus say? The scriptures tell us that Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father, that he pours out his blessings upon us, that the Holy Spirit is here, he's Counselor and comforter in the world. So I just want to read again Matthew eleven twenty eight, and read it with the perspective that we've just gained. This sense that many today affirm faith. They are people of faith, yet they don't have hope. Faith has become that plodding drudgery. And into this, the word of God says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary. And burdened. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, a yoke being something that a horse would put upon themselves in order to plow a field. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If this is resonating, if there's a sense you're listening and you're like, man, that's partially me. I have faith. I'm here. I'm tuning in today watching this. But actually, I don't have hope. How do we move forward?
Well, first of all, we need to understand the difference between seasons of struggle in our faith and a status quo of struggle. To be a human being is to go through seasons where it's not easy. Every human being in these physical bodies will have moments of physical illness. Human bodies wear out. There is this sense that we are beset by physical ailments. We're also beset by social ailments, whether the dysfunctionality of others who are connected to very closely relationally or the dysfunctionality of systems and cultures and nations. The world is a place where sin has been defeated, yet it's still at play. And so humans and believers will go through seasons of struggle. That's normal. But what we're talking about here is when that is accepted as a kind of status quo. And so Paul says this in Philippians 4 verse 11 to 13. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, many of us know that last verse 13, and it's a great verse. I can do all things through he who strengthens me. It's on Steph Curry's sneakers, I think. It's this sense that that's a verse which often people put forward as a way of achieving what we want to achieve in the world. But we can take it out of its context that what Paul is saying here is there is this kind of faith which transcends external circumstances. This sense of contentment in God. So the second step then is to recognize the crisis of a struggling faith. If you are watching this, if you are listening to this, there is a sense that some of it may be resonating. Now you can just let that little thought land like a bird on your head and then fly away. But the second step is if you are listening to this and you say, that's my faith. My faith actually has become a status quo of defeat. My faith has been this thing where I look back to the golden moment when I was saved or perhaps that that incredible period I had when I was a young adult or maybe five years ago when, when God did this renewing thing. But then what you've then settled back into is this kind of defeat in your faith, this fact that it feels like a constant struggle. It's not a season. Some of you may just be going through seasons, but who I'm preaching to at this moment are those who are settled in and gone, well, this is probably what it's going to be like from here on out. So we need to recognize and do a diagnosis that if we are ones heading in a a struggling faith where anxiety or continual nagging doubt or this sense that, man, this is just painful. I'm trying my best here, but I don't seem to be getting anywhere. Or perhaps you're looking left and right at the person on Instagram that you're trying to learn from, but they always seem so happy to maybe your mates who seem to be moving ahead. The key here is to recognize when you're experiencing a crisis of a struggling faith. The third thing, and this is really important, is to understand that a struggling faith that seems to keep going is not a curse, it's a crisis. A struggling faith is not a curse, it's a crisis. What's the difference? A curse is an ongoing state of misfortune. A curse 
is an ongoing state of misfortune. It's like a mark that you can't get rid of. That's the concept that I've got a struggling faith. I'm just cursed to be like this. A crisis is different. Now, both curse and crisis don't sound like fun things you want to do on a Saturday night. But the difference with a crisis from a curse is where a curse is an ongoing state of misfortune, a crisis is a, and this is literally the the dictionary definition I have here, a crisis is a crucial or decisive point or situation, especially a difficult or unstable situation involving an impending change. A curse is a process, a crisis is an event. So a curse is endured, this is point number four, a curse is endured, but a crisis means you confront the issue. A curse is endured, a crisis is confronted. And a crisis confronted leads to change. So what I'm saying here, like, are we going to settle? Are we going to settle for a subpar experience where Believe in Jesus, believe all that stuff. Hear words like heaven flooding earth, excited about that, believe that, wants it, but then experience a daily practical reality where it's just subplot. It's just plodding. It's just difficult. It's one step through wet concrete after another, walking through mud. Will we continue to accept that as a curse or will we reframe it as a crisis which confronts us, but has the potential to move to a change. Evan Hopkins realized that what happened to him was that he had hit a crisis. He did not have to live with this continual struggling faith, that he was doing ministry. He was doing all the right stuff. He had a solid faith. He had this this place in which he could stand and do ministry. Yet what he did not have was a faith of victory. And what he realized was that the crisis actually was Christ. That Christ was actually the crisis. And the reality of who Jesus was, was actually confronting his subpar faith. John 10.10 says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus, Jesus speaking, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the pull. Let me say that again. I have have come that they may have life and have it to the full. This is a choice. Do we see Jesus as the thief or do we see him as the one who has come so that we may have life. Most of us theologically will say, of course, Jesus is the one who's come so that we may have life. Jesus is the one who out of life comes. Jesus is good. But sometimes the way that he is interpreted when in the midst of a struggling faith is we say that, but almost how we live it is that life of faith is just, I'm losing stuff. This is difficult. We practically in our everyday attitude actually almost treat him as if he's the thief. So we actually have to ask that question. Do we want to continue? Do we want to allow this crisis to just continue as a curse? Or do we confront this at this moment? Jesus has his hands out when he comes before us in this crisis. And he reaches out his hands ready to take the burden off us of a weary faith. We're confronted in this crisis. 
before us is the potential of change. But that change is dependent on whether we will continue to stay in our habitual painfulness and continue to carry our faith as just a kind of burden. Or will we place it at the feet of Jesus? So the first thing is we have to go, are we going to put this at the feet of Jesus? Are we going to hand over the continual striving faith? That's maybe theologically correct. But actually the spirit is not present because there's continual drudgery. Once we then hand over and give Christ the burden, realizing that actually it's not our burden to carry, that actually he wants to take the things that we worry about. He wants to take those doubts. He wants to take those disappointments. He wants to take those fractures, what seemingly are in our faith, and he wants to take them all and do the work for us. He did all the work on the cross. He can do the work for for us. We just have to step into the yes. Faith is a yes. It's a yes to the way of heaven, not the way of earth. A yes to the invitation. He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. To believe, to have faith is to go all in on the truth that Jesus is God, that Jesus shows us God and that he is gentle and humble in heart. So there is a yoke, but it's light. There will be seasons of suffering, but it's not a curse. It's not the status quo. Instead, the lightness that comes from walking in alignment with Christ will mark who we are. Now, we're going to continue to dig into this in the coming weeks. But I just wanted to just end Evan Hopkins' story. Out of this quiet renewal... This vast array of different people whose lives were touched at the end of the 19th century that continued into the beginning of the 20th century. And this incredible refreshing as all of a sudden people moved from this faith which was weighty and burdensome and began to be alive and happy and joyous actually in their faith regardless of circumstances. And out of this came this incredible move of God. The gospel went out to the four corners of the world. Melbourne was actually deeply touched by this move. We, many people watching this, if you come from a family which has multi-generations of Christians going back, many of your relatives, probably unbeknownst to you, were touched in these renewals. That you can trace the families of faith that perhaps you grew up in, if that's your circumstance, back to these quiet moments of renewal where often young adults sitting quietly in a convention or in a room being touched by God. We saw this go out and and touch places in Melbourne and Geelong. You stand upon the shoulders of that renewal. You stand upon the shoulders of that yes. But where we are at this moment, I think there's a great parallel to what was happening in the 19th century. And I believe for the next renewal that God wants to do, we need another moment where people move from a looking to the world for hope, looking at the world and falling into hopelessness, a pushing forward in faith, but continually feeling like you're standing in treacle to actually a moment where we now have a new yes. We can't rely on Past generations, yes, 
and in taking up the light yoke. There is this moment now where I actually think what God wants to do is for us to step back into that lightness and joy. But to do that, we have to recognize if we're in that situation where we feel like our faith is a drudgery at this point in time, where our faith is continual striving. And this moment is a crisis, like not just this moment as in this moment in time, in this era. I'm talking about right now. That Christ through his words comes before you now and says, this is not what I planned. I didn't die on the cross. So they just continually went through life with a giant burdensome backpack of drudgery upon your back of always feeling like the best days are before you. Jesus died on the cross. He rose to the heavenlies. He sits at the right hand of the Father. The Holy Spirit is active in the world so that we can have a faith. Circumstances are sometimes going to be difficult, but we can have a faith where we find joy regardless of circumstances. The world desperately now needs a church, not that looks more like the world, but actually looks more like heaven. And that touch of heaven where heaven overlaps with our earthly life and we see people who are refreshed. We need another refreshment like happened at this time. And that begins just as it did then. Ordinary men and women, followers of God, who dare to dream and say yes to Jesus' invitation that there is a deeper faith, a more passionate way of following, a more devoted discipleship, who say yes to faith, but also to hope. He is gentle and humble. You can trust him and follow him. I'm going to pray. God, I just want to thank you for this moment. And we recognize thee holiness of this moment, the take your shoes off moment. My real sense is many watching have felt some resonance with what we're seeing in the scriptures today, what we're hearing in these stories of Christians who went before us. A sense of, yes, Jesus, we believe in you. Yes, we assent to this belief. Yet we kick on a church. We may even try to read that book, listen to that sermon. We sit in rooms where other people seem excited about their faith. We even raise our hands in hopefulness, in worship, yet it just feels like something's missing. The worry, the anxiety, the continual doubting of self, the introspection in the culture also feels like our story. And maybe we've actually lost hope. We have faith, but without hope. And so, Jesus, into this moment, we pray that your Holy Spirit will come and minister to us at this point in time. That will actually open up the windows, will expand the vista, will actually show us the land of milk and honey that has promised those who follow Jesus, that life in abundance, the light yoke. We know, Father, that there is suffering in the world. We know that there's seasons of dryness, that there are wilderness experiences in between, often slavery and freedom. 
But we also know this is not meant to be our lot. We are not cursed. And I just want to pray in Jesus' name against anyone who feels that they're cursed to have this subpar struggling faith. And Jesus, instead of defeat, a faith of defeat, I want to pray in Jesus' name for an outpouring of a faith of victory that's based in your victory. We can't do this. So we just want to put before you all the struggling and striving as good things that have become religious. We place before you all different practices and books and all kinds of things we may have done to get there. And we know that they can be good aids, but they're nothing without you. And so this moment in this very intimate face-to-face meet with you, we hand over our burdens. We hand over a burdened faith. And when you look into your eyes and see that you are gentle and humble. And we take up that light yoke. In your name, Jesus. Amen. The good news story is that this was not just a renewal which led to a bunch of people feeling less anxious and more excited about their faith. That actually as this renewal took off at the beginning of the 20th century, that one of the greatest missionary movements of young people who went to the four corners of the earth. They didn't go because they had to or they're being compelled to through a sense of religious guilt. They went because the joy was overflowing. And that's the kind of renewal we need God to do at this moment. So bless you as you listen. I pray that you'll continue to meditate upon this. If you're in a huddle at red, talk about this. Ask the question, man, am I just struggling here? Pray for each other. Maybe if you're watching this with others, pray now. And let's actually step into that abundant life which Jesus promises us. Have a fantastic week.